This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Dan Matashevsky, co-founder of CMS Holdings. If you follow Dan on Twitter, you recognize him as one of the wittiest and most fun voices in crypto. In this episode, we cover a wide variety of topics including Dan's successful trading career that led to the launch of CMS, a proprietary trading firm, why he is so attracted to this space, and how, from his perspective, markets have evolved over the past few years. We also discussed the importance and mechanics of stablecoins, and it is worth pointing out we recorded this before they became front-page news last week. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Metashevsky. So today I have Dan Metashevsky founder and partner of CMS, which is by far one of the most fun investment organizations I've ever interacted with. They have a great Twitter profile that's both funny, has levity, and also gives you constant updates of the market. So Dan, I thought an interesting place to start was just your origin story. You were in TradeFi, the hedge fund world, but you were also extremely early into crypto, which I think gives you a unique perspective of how the industry grew up and how you evolved in that space. So why don't you take us back to your early years and when you started in crypto? I can't stress this enough. It was just Bitcoin for a very long time. There were alts, but they have had no meaningful value. People just speculated on the same way they do today, but there was nothing behind them. They were all forks of Bitcoin. And the only exchange really that was doing it in any size was BTC. And I don't know if you remember like when Gox went down, their final deck that they were like trying to like emergency raise money on had how Litecoin trading was going to be like a huge source of PL for them. That was the time frame. So I was working at a hedge fund trading equity derivatives. Trading is a loose term for it. Pretty junior. We were running strategies, but mostly helping out the programming actually side of things. So I had like a bit of a technical background into that. But Got pretty into crypto late 2012. And then Q1 2013, the numbers started to get big. It's like a real run-up in Bitcoin. The notional trading was still small, but it was interesting enough. But there was also just some public figures that were like starting to come out talking about it that were like not the same fringe libertarian scene that had been in it before, which was the core ethos of people that really were early on it. I started doing automated trading on exchanges. So I was doing a bunch of like stat RB type things, what you'd call rudimentary market making. It was very easy to trade. There was nobody around, but the money was small because the notional trading was small. Bitcoin was just a small asset. So I did that for a bit, probably up until that summer. I'd gotten close with Kraken because I was doing a ton of their volume, just messing around trading. And Jesse at the time reached out and was like, we're looking to bring a trader in here at Kraken. It was very early. And things at the hedge fund weren't going bad. They weren't going great. It was just going along. And I was pretty young. I was 25 at the time, I think, and just jumped in. Took a job at Kraken, was there for about six months or take. And then Jeremy and Sean raised their Series A for Circle. 
which was like a ton of mystery. And it was very unclear what they were going to do. The only thing you knew is you could do something with Bitcoin. And I went to work for them in Boston, which is where I was still living at the time. I was commuting somewhat to San Francisco. I'd go there for a month and then come back and worked there for four years, building out that desk under a guy named Josh Lim in the beginning, who left a little bit before 2017, but really built it out through 2017 and 2018, which was like when it really became a business, the trading side of things, and then left there to come to CMS. Been a part of the market in some capacity since 2013, and then have seen all sorts of iterations like go through the market, companies come and go, waves of things that weren't going to be a thing and are a thing. And now everything is much different. It's a bigger horizontal asset class. There's so many more different pieces of things that are going on. It's impossible to like keep on top of it even. It's been a trip for sure. I've known Bobby, the other partner here, basically since 2013. He was working at Second Market, which became Genesis, which is Barry's whole thing in DCG. He bounced around a couple of shots, but we did a lot of business together when he was at Cumberland, which is DRW, the big prop shop in Chicago's trading firm. So we got to know each other close from there. It was like early 2019, I want to say. The end of the bear market, stuff was alive and Circle was not doing well at the time. We were very concerned that they weren't going to make it through at all. And Cumberland's a bit of a mercenary shop. He was like, if I'm going to make a move, it makes sense to do it now. And we teamed up with a third guy, this guy, Julian, who I'd worked with for a long time, was the technical partner. And then we hit the market at a good time. So it's been a good run. In those early days, when you were at Bay Hill and you were just starting to explore Bitcoin, were you accumulating it? And did you already have this philosophical vision that you were part of the Bitcoin thing and you really wanted to own it? Or were you coming in, coming out, always getting back to cash and just trying to trade for the spread? It was definitely just trading in the beginning. It was just like another thing to trade that was volatile and moved around. I didn't really become interested in it for any other philosophic reason or just as an asset until I started getting some real value. The guy who ran Bay Hill, this guy, Alec, he was one of the biggest FX options traders in Chicago. He was like a floor guy. And he was there through the creation of the euro. When we were all talking about this stuff, and this was like really when people thought it would be like a currency. And there's a lot of people talking about it being like a payment round stuff then too. But he was very much just like, why are you guys trading this thing? It's either worth nothing or it's worth a ton of money. This idea that you're just going to like sit around here and trade it is dumb. Either own it or just do nothing. It's either going to go tremendously higher or nowhere at all. He was a little more in my mind of like, just probably don't trade it. You should just probably own it here, which was smart, which was actually very smart. It sounds like that ethos has stayed with you. And you've talked about that before. Like maybe you guys just own the coins and stop trying to overthink it. You too better. I think a lot of people do a lot of damage to themselves on the trading side. Historically, you can say that was true. It's like always, where are we at currently? But I think there's something to be said, especially from like a tax side. What was it like in those early days when today we know that we can open up a bank account, connect it to Coinbase, move it to a MetaMask, go around exchanges? Even though I would say people think that there's a steep learning curve to crypto today, I think back when you were doing it, it was, I don't think it looked anything like people think today. How did you get money in and out of exchanges back then? How did you move money around? What was it like? In the beginning, banking was very hard to get. They couldn't get dollar banking, keep it on the exchange side, even like on the retail side. If you had a bank account with a lot of crypto transactions, pretty high likelihood the bank would flag and shut you down at some point. So people were constantly just rotating bank accounts. It also stopped people from pulling money out of the system a lot. They would just keep cash on exchanges and trade, which was not great because the exchanges got hacked a lot more back then than they did now. The dollar amounts were less, but I'd say we probably had a real material hack on an exchange every four or five months in the early days. And then some exchanges got hacked multiple times and people just kept taking the haircut. But the banking side was really hard, if not impossible. It didn't change until Coinbase 
got A16Z to like force SVB to give them a bank. And that was how Coinbase was able to grab so much market share in the beginning. They owned the US retail consumer just because they got that banking set up so early and were able to take US customers and money compliant and above board. I was working at Kraken at the time and like we couldn't even keep an operating account. We couldn't even just do payroll. Even if you were just paying rent, they were like, no. It was very, very toxic. A lot of that was just lived in a regulatory black box. There was a lot of thought circulating that this was just going to be outright illegal, totally in the US. And look, you ever talk to a compliance department? They're risk-averse people. That's like what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be reducing the risk profile of the bank. It was very hard to keep banking in place and really be able to operate like a trading environment. Movie cash in and out was very, very hard. The first time I actually ever bought Bitcoin, I had to give physical cash to a CVS teller to then deposit to Bitfloor, which is a now defunct exchange. You basically handed over a bunch of cash and trade that showed up on the other side. And you had like a random six-digit pin that tied back to your account. You would never like do that with half a million dollars. It was so unclear it would ever get there. You just like walked into a CVS with a bag of money and then they wrote a six-digit number like on a receipt and then you walked out. That was your proof of transfer? Bitfloor gave you a code and you wrote that on the deposit slip and then you just hoped it showed up. There was not like any recourse that you had. I mean, I guess you could go through customer support, try to tie it on Bitfloor's end, but it showed up for what it's worth. It worked. So back then, I mean, the rails were so creaky. Did you ever have moments of like, what in God's name am I doing walking into the CVS to do this right now? Like, this is clearly not sustainable. Why were you so committed to stick with it during that time? It was the opposite. Despite all of the headaches and hurdles, interest was growing, price was growing. So I was like, look, if people are willing to like go through all this chaos, there's something clearly here. It was more the opposite where I was like, they're doing everything they can to stop people from getting to this and they're clamoring to get in. That was more the tell. People are so interested in this market. You could put any number of roadblocks in between. They would find a way. People did a lot of cash to point transfers to in that day. I never did that mostly because I was like not looking to like get stabbed or something like that. I just didn't really get partake in that world, but people did. So you're at Bay Hill, you go to Kraken, you're there for a short stint. You moved to Circle under this ominous Series A. I think from our research, you know, Circle back originally was going to be a buy-sell Bitcoin app. It was going to be a way for people to purchase. So what were they hiring you to do? It was a retail brokerage model where you'd come in and buy or sell a small amount of Bitcoin. But if you're buying and selling small amounts of Bitcoin, your customers are facing you. You need to go to the market and find that. All the open market operations, like sourcing Bitcoin for the customers, was what they were looking to hire people for. And then we ended up growing that business outside the scope of that. We started just taking order flow that was not customer-related. Circle's retail app, but OTC sort of flow, and then monetizing that as well. And then doing some exchange activity that monetizes as well. So anyway, we grew it way outside the scope of that initial sourcing liquidity for the ad. What was that like? So I know it's a startup and everyone's trying to make money, but you're taking a different type of risk, building an OTC desk and a flow desk. I can imagine, I don't know how Jeremy or the team felt. Like we have this app, we're trying to service our customers, then Dan's over here trading larger blocks of the market every day. Was it a conscious decision for you to become such a pivotal trader in the Bitcoin market, or it just kind of happened naturally? The retail app was doing a material amount of flow. The size of how we needed to be in the market dictated a little bit just from that. But the other thing was, it was fairly safe business. We were doing safe settlement. People settled with us first. Unless we were trading with some of the other desks like Cumberland, we would settle with them first. It's not riskless, nothing is, but it's a pretty good business to be running. And once we started growing it, the P&L became pretty apparent. And Jeremy and Sean were like, yeah, we're a startup and we don't make any money. I mean, in the end, it was a whole different ballgame, but 
the thing that dangled the carrot was this just makes money and it's fairly safe and we're kind of doing it anyway. Why wouldn't we just continue to do this? Was it an obvious transition to start trading Ethereum and other coins or were you guys Bitcoin only and that was how the business was set up? We were Bitcoin only for a long time. We were a little late to Ethereum, I think, probably like 6 or $7 when we finally started trading it. It was really just a function of everyone we were trading Bitcoin with was starting to demand trading ETH. Or they were like, do you guys trade ETH? We'd be like, no. And then they'd go trade with Cumberland. And I was like, we're just pissing away business here. We just just do this. People are naturally coming to us and we're like deciding not to take the business because we just don't historically. But that one was a big shift. And like that needed board approval. That was really a turning point. This had nothing to do with the customer order flow anymore. Everyone was on board once they got thrown out there, the opportunity set. What time frame was that? Probably mid-2016, going up into the ICO boom. Yeah, let's talk about the ICO boom. So this period where people just started launching a tremendous amount of coins, it seems like one of the greatest hype bubble cycles that's happened in crypto. What was it like in 2017 trading that order flow? It's always been like, right, how big are OTC markets? You get a lot of arguments about this stuff still now. Things have gone derived so much, so probably less, but we were trading on order of what you'd see on Bitstamp on a day. We were a lot of flow that was like ending up also at Bitstamp necessarily, but we were trading huge amounts of the volume that were just clearing in the world. Between Cumberland Genesis and us, we saw a lot of the market and especially a lot of the net aggregate taking activity that was in the market. So it was big and it was chunky and spreads were wide. And also it was really hard to access exchanges still. There was a lot of compliance hurdles. And also in the ICO boom, everyone tried to onboard at the same time. So I don't know if you remember or if you were involved a ton in that time frame, but the exchanges stopped taking new customers. People were selling accounts. So you could buy verified KYC accounts on eBay. All the exchanges compliance departments were a month backlogged. The problem is I think if you're like Coinbase's compliance, you got 10,000 people in a queue and you have no idea how to prioritize them. We were pretty good at knowing this guy has flow and this matters toss him to compliance and get him done in the next hour, and then we'll trade that. We were much better at rank ordering who mattered, whose flow we were trying to take. We were grabbing a ton of the market that was coming through in that time frame, And there were really big tickets, like all moving in pretty quick succession. The OTC market, us in particular, had a lot more outside impact in what was going on in the world on the liquidity side than I would say they do now. We've talked about it in the past, but I think it's interesting because I was surprised at how it was working. But walk me through the mechanics of when an ICO would happen, people would come to you and want that coin, then they would exchange their ETH and kind of the recycling nature of what the ICO boom looked like to a trading desk. The ICO boom is a little weird because what you'd have is there'd be an ICO this Thursday. You'd net sell to the market 100,000 Ether between Monday and Tuesday. And then it would come back and get sold to you Thursday, Friday. You could have these predictable flows based on how the stuff was going. A lot of them just wanted dollars, but they were transferring it to ETH. And like, look, some of them kept real balances in ETH. It obviously gave value accrual to Ether as well. But a lot of it was trading activity that was just trying to like transfer dollars through the system. So it was great because you kind of knew where the flows were going. I want to move to where Circle evolved as the backer of USDC stablecoin. So where did that idea come from? Why were stablecoins so important in crypto? Stablecoins were born with Tether. I mean, there was stuff before it, but Tether was the one that mattered. We actually minted a lot of Tether through 2017 at Circle at the time, mostly because we were trading so much on Bitfinex and sending cash there. So cash and Tether were the same thing on Bitfinex back then. They're not now, but that was the same pool. So if you sent money to Bitfinex, you effectively minted Tether and vice versa if you withdrew and redeemed. But it was born out of the frustration that exchanges couldn't still keep US banking. 
Even Coinbase, who had that SVB relationship, they eventually lost that. Ended up with Silvergate now, but they bounced to Metropolitan. Very hard to keep those bank accounts in place. So Tether was a really good way for exchanges in Asia in particular to be able to offer dollar trading, but not have dollar banking. Stablecoins grew pretty big out of Asia's demand to trade crypto, but they just wanted dollars and they couldn't have dollar banking. So they would just use stablecoins. And Tether was the big grow of that. There was three versions that all got launched pretty quickly. It was PAX, it was GUSD, and it was USDC. Tether's always been a little bit mirrored in mystery. It's never been easy to just go and mint and redeem Tether. We always had to do some like hurdles and hops. And we would do those things and like we knew how to do it. We were aware, but it was not entirely as retail friendly and regulatory compliant as Jeremy thought like a stablecoin could or should be. That was the incarnation of it. We're going to make a compliant, super above board, easy to create and redeem for like retail. And eventually got Coinbase on board with it too, which was the differentiating factor that let USDC win. Coinbase just lets you seamlessly create and destroy it. You can just swap your balance. That was the end game. PAX is still around. And I mean, GUSD is basically dead. Well, let's talk about Tether because it's just a great headline name. For people who are new to crypto and you Google Tether, you see a bunch of nasty headlines. New York AG, bank accounts, it's not real, it's a fraud. I think professors wrote Ponzi's papers about it. So Tether just always had this bad boy reputation. But you were in a really unique seat using Tether and doing the cross-exchange trade. Do you explain what you were using Tether for and your perspective of Tether, maybe what people aren't going to read in the headlines? So here's what happens. Bitcoin on Coinbase becomes expensive. And it becomes expensive because so many retail people are trying to buy Bitcoin and Ether that the price on Coinbase is drifting away from Bitfinex. And you could be like, well, why don't people on Bitfinex just sell on Coinbase? Again, the compliance queue is around the block and you're not going to be able to get an account open. They were trying to. And you can be like, well, why aren't people arbing out the difference? That's what we were trying to do, except you could only pull $20 million a day out of Coinbase. And you can be like, well, $20 million is a lot. Yes, but it's not if you have half a billion dollars a day trying to buy. If there's five desks that can cycle $20 million a day from Bitfinex to Coinbase, you have a net imbalance that's going to keep the pricing high on Coinbase. So what you were trying to do in that time frame is you were trying to sell on Coinbase, get the cash to Bitfinex, buy on Bitfinex, and then sell on Coinbase. You were trying to cycle this as fast as possible, but the system only moves so fast, and you can only do $20 million a day on Coinbase. At some point, you just get stuck. You get gated from it. The spreads just widen. The other side of this is you end up getting a ton of tether because you're constantly trying to send money to Bitfinex. You're just sending every dollar that you've ever had that's not spoken for into the world of tether. So that was why the tether creation was getting so big is people were trying to buy assets on Bitfinex to then go sell them on Coinbase. But everybody looks at it as like, oh, tether creation pumped the price. And it's like, no, the price pumped, which caused tether creation. That's not the way the cycle played out. The media and like academics have written that. But as somebody who did it, I can firmly tell you the only reason we were creating Tether was because there was a mismatch. And the mismatch was just created because Coinbase had so much retail volume pushing through it. It's so interesting to hear you tell that story because when you read the paper, which I went through, they were trying to show this correlation that Tether was being created and Tether was pumping Bitcoin. And so it was just this Ponzi scheme feedback loop that would eventually blow up. But when you explain, it's like, no, it was being used to close a market arbitrage opportunity, which is a lot more complex for someone to get their mind around, but makes all the sense after hearing it from you. Kraken put out a good thing to try to like dispel this a little bit where they were like, we lined up our customer dollar balances against the Bitfinex Tether 
because Tether's stuff is auditable and you can see it on the blockchain. So you have visibility into it. And Kraken was like, yeah, this looks exactly like ours. You just don't have visibility into it. If you looked at Coinbase's flows, it would have been in front of it. There would have been money moving there first and you could track it, but you don't have that visibility. So everybody just screams foul. I tend to be of the assumption that the New York AG and DOJ looked at this stuff. And at this point, probably have just been like, all right, this is what happened. It'd be very odd if all these regulatory agencies suddenly looked at it and they were like, massive scam, but we're just going to let it keep happening. It doesn't make any sense. How does a stable coin make money? How is that a good business? You just get on the interest. It's better business now, actually. How does Circle make money on USDC? What are the economics there? So this is where it's a little bit of a fight with the SEC because they can take that cash and they can invest in short-term paper. The SEC is fighting them on what they can put that into, but even at minimum, they can put it in government bonds, just around interest. So they're basically running like a money market fund with less rules. That's the SEC's argument. I want to get to leverage where stable coins come in. Sam Bankman-Fried has this quote of how there's a trillion dollars of demand for crypto, but there's only $200 billion of stablecoin. And the only way to solve this in a market is interest rates. So how do you think about leverage in the crypto space? How do you monitor how much is in the system? Talk to me about borrow rates and how that affects your investment process. What effectively you'd consider the risk-free interest rate in crypto, everything's a little more risky, is like materially higher than you see lending rates in TradFi. A lot of that's driven by the fact that there's just a lot of demand for leverage in the system and not enough capital that's willing to face it. Crypto is still like a very scary industry to a lot of TradFi people, particularly people that are probably sitting on cash balances looking to lend it. So they're like not looking into that as an option. So like the rates get blown out apart. And especially in bull markets, when everybody's looking for leverage, rates get very high. It's not unheard of to see like 20, 25% financing rates. You can kind of see that through either the perpetual financing of the perps against spot, or the quarterly futures will get very contango. That variance will exhibit itself. That's a big thing we look for to sort of see how much fraud there is at the market at any given time. I mean, rates have come down a lot, but it tends to be a function of price. Like price is going down, demand for leverage is less. And people are getting blown out. Let's explain that in a way that doesn't involve Contango or Perps. There's a futures contract for Bitcoin in a month from now, and that's at one price. And then there's Bitcoin Spot, which is where you can trade today. What are you doing in a simple example that gives you this risk-free rate? Let's say you borrow a million dollars. You buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and you sell a million dollars worth of futures. And then as the futures go to expiry, the price comes back to Spot. So that delta between the future price and the Spot price it's like an interest rate component. It shows you how much it costs to borrow cash because that's what you argue against. Really, that's all you're doing. Buying spot, rolling and selling future and rolling it down. What's that rate been for like the past month or so? Or what's it today for context? Sub 80%. In bull market times, it's 15, 20. Real bear market is like three to five. So this gets to the CMS investment process. When you talk about a risk-free rate, is this what you're comparing against? If we're going to go take risk, whether it's farming or lending or staking something, can we beat this thing that we know how to do so well? Farming really changed though, because the farming reward weights have just been better. There's almost always somewhere you can park stables and earn over that. That's tend to have been a better yardstick for where we're looking. How is CMS set up from a liquid versus illiquid? How is CMS structured? I would say that we're probably these days 60, 40 venture to liquid. The venture stuff's just grown so much. Those positions have swelled. It just is a bigger portion of what we're doing at any given time. When you think about managing risk or capital allocation, how does that work between you and Bobby and Julian? Do you have a top-down approach? Are you running pods where you give people capital? Like, How do you think about managing the money? 
We run it all in one book. We just take trading PL and use it to fund venture. I'm not going to try to pry too much to the size of CMS because it is a proprietary shop, but you did at one point try to buy a $3 million Triceratops fossil. So obviously you're doing really well, but give us a size and scope of how CMS is. And then let's talk about the Triceratops. We're definitely not Alameda sort of jump level scale stuff, but we can put material positions on in the market if we see fit at any given time. So we're not balance sheet constrained. Before we get into Triceratops, which I want to talk about, when I first met you and Matt Walsh introduced me, I was looking at talking to people about what it would be like to run a fund in the space, whether it was crypto or NFTs. And everyone's like, oh, start a fund, start a fund, start a fund. And when I talked to you, the first thing you said is never start a fund or take other people's money ever unless you have to, but don't do it. And I just think it was a really unique perspective. Can you explain to people your view on running your own money versus taking other people's money and the disadvantage maybe funds have versus a proprietary shop like your own? The biggest disadvantage is crypto moves really fast. What's relevant, what matters, and what you're doing could really just change in a month, let alone a year. And if you're constantly having to deal with investors and like communicate those changes and or getting approvals or trying to navigate in your mandate, you're going to spend just a ton of time doing those things and you're going to miss where the opportunity set is. The other thing is the economics in crypto don't really make a ton of sense to me unless you raise a ton of money. Crypto in particular is like you can run a smaller pool of capital and have a much better return profile and you don't want to be giving 80% of that away. Or you can have a really big fund where you just look a lot more like you're indexing and you're managing that level of it. So if you are going to do it, you just have to raise a ton. Running a 5 to $40 million book, you're not going to really make any money, I think, at the net end of it. Even if you have a lot of edge, you might blow the whole fund up and 10x and that's great. And I hope you do that. Obviously, you have to have some of your own money. But even leveraging that up just through compounding returns and like where you see the best opportunity set, this is dependent to you got to have a good market. We've seen a large number of multi-billion dollar funds raised in the space. So I think we've seen a lot on the venture side. We've seen public liquid hedge funds raised. What's your view on the impact of the market? Obviously, people are raising these mega funds. How do you think that's going to impact the market in both the public and the private side? That money net flows into like mostly majors. I mean, we've seen it most dramatically in jacking up the seed and early stage financing rounds. Everything's like still very oversubscribed, even though the tape hasn't been great. Even though the market may be weak, everything's still oversubscribed, mostly because there's so much money trying to put into like the early stage. So let's take a little bit of a complete tangent. Triceratops, when did you get into collecting fossils and buying exotic new things? So it's a Triceratops. It was the most complete Triceratops that had ever come on the market. And this was peak just crypto behavior. We were like, all right, we're going to buy this thing. We got an idea from the auction house of what they thought it would go for. And we were like, all right, we can do this. Sent a guy to Paris, did the whole KYC process, which was actually kind of intense. And immediately the bids start fading like our max. What they thought it was going to go for was just a third of what it ended up actually trading at. It was a real bull market in fossils too. I think an American guy actually won it. So it just completely faded us. But we had sent a deposit to prove we were a real bidder. We ended up using the deposit money to buy some other stuff that was at the auction. We got some stuff for the office there. It wasn't a complete loss, but yeah, just completely ran away from us. Never really figured out what we'd do with it if we got it. Yeah, I think we'll give it a museum. It was like a, we'll figure it out later thing, which we never had to. I think it'd be really cool if it was in like the Boston Science Museum and that were like, oh, that's Dan's Triceratops. <laughs> that would definitely be different. Joking aside, did you actually think about that like an investment or was that a splurge fun thing to do? No, this was like, this would be a fun thing to do and we'll donate it or something. Is there a market for fossils that people trade? Oh, it's big. 
Sotheby's and all those guys, they have fossil departments. After we did it, somebody reached out about selling us a T-Rex. And I was like, I don't know if this is a scam. I had no reason to believe it was or it wasn't. But I was like, this is how you get in that world. There's like a bunch of ironies there. Of like one, people looking into crypto think the same thing. Like, this is a weird world. They don't know Dan from CMS or any of this stuff. And you're now entering another world. It's two parts. One, people love to collect stuff and they like to value things outside of what is normal because they're into it. And there's all these different worlds that you can find your way into. So let's move back to crypto. Lately, more current events. This first quarter has been crazy. We're talking now in April. We had a hawkish Fed. Inflation numbers are high. We had Russia invade the Ukraine. I think Lloyd Blankfein tweeted this. If crypto was ever going to have its moment, this was the quarter. In your opinion, how has crypto held up? How has Bitcoin performed? Are you surprised? What's your take? I mean, it's not down that much. It's a risk asset. I think that's pretty clear. I've always been skeptical of the flight to safety angle of it. That doesn't seem to have played out a ton. Relative to other risk assets, I think it's performing in line, to be completely honest. People are pretty bearish, though. There's a lot of that feeding through in the market, too. But I think it's trading as I would expect. Alts have gotten really killed, but that is just a function of there not being a ton of bit on the longer tail of risk once it's liquid anyway. How has leverage played a role when you have a market sell-off? I've always been curious why in such a volatile asset class we see this much leverage being used. What's your take on why people use this much leverage? And then when there's an unwind, how does leverage impact the selling price? It definitely makes things overshoot. This is where a lot of edge for like the larger desks I think come from too, is just spying those stretch licks. I think there's a lot of leverage because there's a lot of retail participation that is very sure that for the price is going up in the future. They like want to be as long as they can, but they don't take into account the pet dependency of it. So they end up getting stopped like in positions through it out. But I think that's a lot of it. Leverage has always been pretty baked into the system, unfortunately. Are you surprised that it hasn't come down and it's only gone up? Do you think that over time, leverage will decrease and it will either be regulated away or people will just be like, wow, I don't like getting blown out of my portfolio? Or do you think that leverage is just something that's synonymous with crypto? I think it's just going to be synonymous with crypto for a while. Do you think that leverage sources stay the same? Like people go to offshore exchanges? Or do you think that the form where they get leverage changes? I think at some point, there'll be a framework in the US for some of this stuff to come onshore. Say he has like a comment letter right now with FTX that is a baby step in like this stuff going out. Maybe that's how it goes. I believe at some point it'll happen. That's a good point of just moving to regulators. To me, it seems like there's a framework here of probably three paths for the United States. Crypto is deemed a security and Gensler and the SEC get to regulate it. It's viewed more like a commodity and the CFTC gets to oversee it, which is the approach FTX seems to want. And the third is that we just create a whole new regulator for crypto. Is that a right framework? And which path do you see regulation in crypto going? I come of the opinion that it will go the CFTC route. I obviously like want that. But I also just think it falls more into that bucket. I think it does function more as a commodity in general. I mean, they also have Bitcoin and ETH. So there's a little bit of precedent here that it just continues to be there. I'm of the opinion that's where it will ultimately live. I hope it works out that way. But it's tough. You have an administration in the SEC in particular that tends to be the opinion a lot of this stuff should live there and wants oversight of the exchanges too. But it seems closer to me that those should fit under CFTC given the other products that they trade. Why do crypto investors or traders prefer the CFTC? Is it less regulation? What is it? A lot of things become impossible if things are securities, or at least in the current incarnation of how we treat securities. There's two ways. You could either have them be commodities and send CFTC, or you can make changes to what our definition of what we can do with securities are. What's like a good 
example of that if something was deemed a security, it just wouldn't work anymore. A lot of these things couldn't trade freely. I would assume that most of the stuff that happens in DeFi isn't above board if they're all deemed to be securities. NFTs, you were dismissive of them at first. Has your mind changed on NFTs? How do you think about NFTs as an asset class or a place to trade? It's definitely wrong. Maybe I'm old. I didn't think they'd be this big. They've attracted just a tremendous amount of value, some of them in particular. And people really love them. I'm not going to fade it. I'm wrong. People just love to like trade these things and be involved in them. and They're fun. I've participated myself, but I didn't think it'd be as big as it was or is. It seems to be just growing daily. Are you adding that to the CMS strategy? Could you even add that based on how you manage money? No, it's kind of hard. Just too many things and pieces to manage. If we do anything and what we have done is like been investors and pieces of infrastructure that sit on it, we're not going to just sit and manage a portfolio of a thousand different NFTs. So on the liquid side, what are the different strategies that you run? You talked about farming, maybe a little bit deeper on what that means to run a farming operation. What are the other type of strategies or the high level, how you think about it? There's definitely short-term directional risk-taking. There's basis trading of futures against spot. The other thing is farming, which really changes by the week. Because a lot of the issuance of tokens in the last year has been some function of a farming mechanic where you're locking up or doing activity on the X chain. Going to that stuff has been profitable as like a place to deploy assets. Also, like a lot of things we've invested in, we'll try to like help and contribute TBL to. Is that just staking? Or is there something like when you go to a chain, you're locking up tokens you have, they're going to emit more tokens to you, and then you're going to either keep them or sell them for something else? Or what does it mean? There's a lot of different flavors of it. It's generally the concept of you're taking some asset, whether it's the core asset, like ETH, dollars, Bitcoin, or something like that, posting that to like do some activity, and then that activity generates some token. When you do those type of activities, is it known how many you're going to get? You just don't know what the future value of that token may be when you get them? Is that the right way to think about it? Usually, yeah. Generally, like the model is you know the issuance that you'll get for the token, but you have no concept of where the token will trade. And is it that even not knowing where the price is going to trade, just in a general assumption, the rates are so high that it beats that risk-free rate you talked about earlier? Yeah, usually. I mean, you're guessing a little bit, but you tend to have an idea. You run a really sophisticated operation. I get this question a lot from just normal people entering it, or maybe your mom asks you, how do I get into crypto? What do you tell the average person who wants to get exposure to the space? If you want to take an investment, buy a little bit of Bitcoin and ETH. And then if you want to learn more, buy some of the chains that you want to do something on and just use it. Really, the only way you're ever going to understand or get this stuff is interface and use the protocols. How does someone do that? Near protocol has been something you've been talking about, and people are talking about sitting on the near protocol. How does someone get exposure? Where do you start? So it's going to depend where you're coming from. So you got to go to Coinbase or FTX or Binance US, and then they have to either get stables there or deposit cash, then buy a little bit of it, and then go on Twitter or the Discord and then figure out how to play around with it. That's like really the only way I've found people to understand this stuff is using it. What is your information flow like? I feel like some people think the big investors like you and some of these other people, they're in these private discords and telegrams and you all know what's going to happen. How much information do you get from private chats versus Twitter and public sources? I would say like in general, nobody has an idea where the aggregate market's going. I don't think there's some cabal of people that move the price. It's just too big a market. You can't. Little assets, yeah. There's good information flow about what's going on and stuff like that. But like Bitcoin and ETH, no, you don't really. A lot of the information flow is really just figuring out what's happening on what chain, where and why, what are the flows going to, and what is interesting, what are people building. We talk to people about that stuff. In terms of aggregate market movement, I don't think anybody really knows. 
you can get an idea of where leverage rates are in financing and stuff, but nobody has that great a crystal ball on this stuff. How helpful is it? And I think that maybe we've seen this business model shift that it's not uncommon for people now to be set up like CMSs with a venture capital arm and a liquid token side. How much of that helps your investment process to see both sides of the market? Pretty helpful. It gives you a lot more information horizontally into other parts of what the ecosystem are doing. We found it immensely beneficial. Dan, this has been an awesome conversation. I always learn so much from you. I'm always grateful for the time you give me and teach me so much about this space. We end these podcasts with the same question every time. What are you most excited to either see built or invest in or market evolve over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see over the next six years? I think in six years, you're going to see a lot more merging of everyday life things into things that are crypto. That's just going to keep more intertwining. That's like really interesting to see. It's hard to know what that means, but I think it will become entrenched in more pieces of life than you sort of see now. Like crypto just lives in its own world. It hasn't really pushed out into other things yet, but I think that will happen in six years. In the next six months, I mean, like I'm very interested in DeFi derivatives. I'm very interested in what happened with Spot, where like you had a lot of activity like move and DEX trading become a thing. Curious to see if we'll see a similar thing happen in DeFi derivative side. There's a bunch of protocols we backed. None of them have a ton of like usage yet, but I think there's a world where you see like a core constituent of people that trade in that world too. So that's like what I'm most excited for in the next six months. You're going to see the L2s release tokens, and I think you're going to probably see the merge play out. So the merge just got delayed. What's your best bet on when we actually see the ETH 2.0 merge happen? I think it'll be later part of the summer, which I don't think is like a crazy delay. No, not at all. If you said 23, I would have said that's a delay. I don't think it's going to kick to the next year. I think it's going to happen before fall. All right. Well, that's an optimistic note to end on. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. This is always fun. I love catching up with you. Yeah, no worries. Glad to be here. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 